Hello everyone and welcome to episode 28 of Now and Men, the podcast about men, masculinities and gender equality. It's Sandy Ruxton here and I'm with Stephen Burrell. Yeah, hi Sandy and hi everyone. Here with us for today's episode is Professor Jonathan Schofield. Jonathan is a Professor of Social Work in the School of Social Sciences at the University of Cardiff in Wales and he's also a Deputy Director of Cascade which is the Children's Social Care Research and Development Centre there. And Jonathan has conducted an extensive body of research over his career on topics including child and family services and father's engagement with services, uh, working with men more generally, social work education, identity and religion, and suicide and self-harm. We wanted to focus in particular on on the last topic a bit more, uh, as this is an issue we haven't really discussed yet on Now and Men, but obviously for decades has been a key area of concern in relation to health and well-being, particularly amongst men. Yeah, and we just wanted to say at the beginning, like, as with several uh, other episodes of Now and Men as well, like, we will cover some quite difficult issues today. Uh, So yeah, please do just take care of yourselves as you listen and afterwards and do have a look at the show notes for the episode because we do always put more detail about what we'll be discussing in there in case you just want to check that first. So hi Jonathan and thanks for joining us. To, To start off with, now in the UK the suicide rate as I understand it has fallen considerably since the 1980s but it's risen again uh, in recent years and overlaid on that, men are three times more likely to take their own lives as women. We know that a common narrative in relation to this, especially in the media, is that men are generally less inclined or unwilling to seek help when they need to. Do, do you think this is an adequate explanation of, of, uh, of what's going on here? And if, if not, why not? Hi, Sandy, Stephen. Thanks for having me uh, on the podcast. So, yeah, I think we need to be a little bit wary with this if it's being used as a overly simplistic explanation. So there is something to be said overall, looking at a variety of different physical and mental health conditions. There does seem to be evidence that men overall are less likely to seek professional help. But I guess two, two issues with this. One is that if that's the only thing that we have to say about self-harm, and suicide from a gender perspective, then that's incredibly limiting. Uh, But also, you know, we do need to pick it apart a little bit and just be careful about how we use it as a generalisation. Because, of course, once you break that down, you look at particular kind of health conditions, it may be that there are health conditions where there isn't much difference between men's and women's health help seeking. Um, And, of course, then you've got the issue of different groups of men. Because, you know, there may be some some respects in which uh, men may be very likely to ask for help. I mean, you know, if you think about some of the some of the stereotypes we have, the the, the old man flu stereotype, you know, isn't uh, it, it? Of course, it's it's a joke, isn't it? Essentially, it's a joke about men being less less good about coping with the same kind of symptoms as women are. But it, it doesn't speak to men not necessarily asking for help. So I, I, I'm not suggesting we blow down a whole load of rigorous evidence on the basis of a stereotype. Absolutely not. I, I just mentioned that to say that we should just just ask some questions about this general trend of differences between men and women and think about what else is going on within that, really. And in, in particular, you know, so there could well be some much more substantial differences between uh, different groups of men than there are actually between men and women. This is something that's been pointed out about the research on men's health more generally. I remember Raymond Connell writing about this in one of her books, can't remember, it might have been The Men and the Boys, I think, um, sort of r- rather critiquing the emphasis on on men's health for not, for, for perhaps, you know, overstating the, the, the gender differences at the expense of other kinds of diversities that we need to to focus on. So certainly in terms of suicidality, I think it's really important that we look at diversity of masculinities. There's a bit of a bit of an unhelpful tendency, I think, when we're thinking in thinking about masculinized social problems, of, of which there are the many, and social suicide is, is a clearly clearly one, isn't it? Suicide is a topic that many, many people know that there's big gender differences in the in the suicide rates pretty consistent across the world that men are much more likely to take their own lives than than women are um 
And it is a bit of a tendency to to create binaries whereby because suicide is is a tragic outcome that uh, men who are suicidal are, are simply put into the category of, of social victim as if again that's all there is to say and you know other social problems are seen as men as you know sort of uh, seen as perpetrators i guess in fact once you break down what's happening with suicidal behavior and different groups of men different masculinities plurality of masculinities you see that it actually gets much more complicated you you wrote a, a paper back in 2005 um which set out i think a, a slightly broader approach to uh, the topic and, and that still seemed very relevant when when i looked at it i wondered if you wanted to to expand on what you proposed then particularly in terms of sort of the range of factors which may help to explain suicide amongst men so you know i think you talked about loss of honor and status and emotional illiteracy and some issues like that do you, do you want to say a bit more about that and about that that paper yeah sure so i suppose it's a bit of a challenge the idea of just comparing men and women as, as sex groups and not looking at diversity mm. and and also not taking power into consideration um and, and and it's important that you know we learn from feminist scholarship that we already have which sheds light on on, on men and masculinities so I suppose I talk, yeah, I talk about the need to look at diversity of masculinities and, and talk about Connell's hierarchical model of masculinized practices. So well, I suppose when I was writing that paper all, the, all those years ago, it struck me that uh, there were some very different kinds of masculinities that were representative in, ter represented in terms of elevated risk. So, you know, for example, you 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 have the... The, the protest masculinity of young offenders who often might be displaying a, a kind of hyper-masculinized uh, set of behaviors. And you also got the subordinated in, in Connell's terms, um, masculinity of, of gay men. Obviously things, things have moved on with the position of uh, uh, sexual diversity in society since, since some of Connell's early writings might be a debate about whether the term subordinated still applies in 2023 but you know i think in some respects it still does and um the fact that you've got these two very different forms of masculinity both representing elevated suicide risk i thought was really interesting you know and um how how do we um understand and make sense of this so yeah to think of raywin connell's concept of of hegemonic masculinity which i guess is the most culturally authorized form of masculinity in any given social cultural context then th there's definitely some relevance there when we're trying to understand um suicide in in, in men so in the paper i write about when hegemon he when hegemonic masculinity fails in, 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 i think i talk about the failure of the patriarchal dividend to deliver as promised so taking some some key domains where there's an expectation of um, men to succeed and not only succeed, but to perhaps succeed in a reasonably conspicuous way that they can be seen to succeed mm. and, and get a certain masculine honor from success. Two obvious ones being uh, the, the realm of work and also uh, also family and, in, and kind of intimate relationships. So with both of those, we see that, you know, some of the, the wide spectrum of evidence we have about su suicide, suicidality would suggest that there's there's risks there associating for when those uh, expected roles don't work out. So um, it could be um, it could be unemployment. It could be the sudden loss of a job or the loss of uh, of, of a rank within a job. Um there is some evidence about demotion, for example, in, in organizations as being associated with elevated suicide risk um, or other other issues to do with money that are not work per se. But, you know, people uh, having having um, a, a lot of debt. So that's that's one aspect of of what, what might you call a loss of honor in terms of masculinity um, and one of intimate relationships being, you know, being being seen to. Uh, be successfully heterosexual um 
having that uh, that that relationship that marks you out as as a kind of respectable heterosexual man, whether that's mm. you know what wh whatever the, the the form, whatever the family form or, or relationship form, there's something there about um, about a loss of honour as a man associated with re with relationships ending. And um, yeah, so so one aspect that I've I've done some research on in more recent years is the connection between relationship breakdown and suicide in in men. Yeah, and I mean, um, I mean, I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose perhaps we often hear this idea that, I mean, kind of this idea, as you said, that there are issues where men seem to be the kind of main victims, as it were, as it's perhaps presented, and that and that somehow these issues therefore might delegitimize a kind of feminist analysis or show that actually, you know, feminist ideas about there being like widespread gender inequality in society are somehow not accurate um, and are not addressing these these issues which men are disproportionately facing. Um, but I suppose what you seem to be saying is that feminist-informed theories like that of Raywin Connell and, and hegemonic masculinity show that actually, you know, these pressures which come with men having more power in society actually are contributing to things like suicide, mental health problems. I mean, yeah, do you want to say anything more about that, about the kind of the impact that, that Raywin Connell's theory of hegemonic masculinity had on you and why you found it so relevant to this work? You know, things like, for example, the idea that men should never be vulnerable and never show weakness or, um, or failure, as you say, like... Um, often still remain very influential, I guess, don't they? Yeah, so uh, a, a term I, I've always quite liked um, from William Courtney in writing about men's health is he talks about the social construction of the stronger sex in relation to men's mm -hmm. health. So, you know, there are there are ways in which, um, yeah, sort of patriarchal advantage does actually end up being kind of bad for everybody, really. Mm -hmm. um, certainly... Uh, certainly bad for for women in an unequal social structure, but also can be also bad in terms of men's health. Um, and yeah, definitely strong connections with with feminist theories about masculinities, as shown in Connell's work. So hegemonic muscul masculinity, I, I I mentioned just there. There's also the connection with domestic abuse, which I've written about in in a in relation to a couple of studies so um and this is definitely a challenge to the idea that we you know we should only understand men's suicide in in, in terms of social victimhood that you know there are indicators that you know a minority but perhaps an important and not 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 small minority of suicide cases take place in what could be broadly understood as a context of domestic abuse, such as um, we have, you know, we have looked at uh, samples of suicide cases where you have really extreme cases, like a like a murder suicide case, where it's really overt, um, you know. Uh, but but also, and I'm thinking of another case in 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 the 100 that we studied um, in one study of coroner's files, where. Uh, there was a, a clear motive of punishment um, by the the man who took his life of his his uh, female ex partner, uh, which was you know played out in the suicide note as well as the the other evidence that had been given in the days running up to the death. Now those are quite extreme cases. Um, there were other cases where the the power abuse was 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 less overt uh, but nonetheless there were indications of um, very kind of tr very uh, troubled and power imbalanced relationships which kind of form the context of the suicide also a lot of use of threats of suicide uh, as uh, as part of the the range of behaviors that were uh, that come across um, as a context of domestic abuse so you know mm. once we start looking looking at those circumstances it, it does yeah poses a challenge to a kind of simplistic um suggestion that the elevated suicide rate in men needs to be understood simply uh, uh in terms of how you know um how hard it, be, it is to be a man and any kind of anti-feminist narrative about how hard feminists make it um <laughs> for uh for men in contemporary society i think is you know that that's very easily knocked out knocked out of the water i mean 
and and unquestionably there are elements of of masculinity in all in all this where you you can quite rightly focus on some aspects of of social victimhood i mean another thing we i, I wrote about in that paper that sandy referred to was you know to, we talk about two aspects of subordinated masculinity in connell's terms um so one of gay masculinity um now the evidence is not very clear that gay um gay and bisexual men are more likely to actually take their own lives but in terms of having suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts then yes that is pretty clear that they are at greater risk it's also true for for trans men um does that relate to the sort of notion that that men should conform to a sort of heterosexual ideal and that there's so, extra pressures on them if if they don't. Yeah, and, um, and I do think these, you know, the, the, these things are are changing uh, quite quite certainly. What we see change, changing quite rapidly if we see things like the British Social Attitude Survey, which is done every single year, um, we do see shifting um, mm. attitudes in society to sexual diversity for sure. Uh, but we still have, you know, a, a powerful legacy of homophobia that has not disappeared as it by any means we still see that um, gay bisexual and trans men do see growing up and yeah i, I think that that can be understood in terms of this this concept of yeah subordinated mm. masculinity a form of masculinity that is the opposite of being culturally authorized which is actually quite culturally denigrated yeah homophobic bullying presumably is part of that picture that's, as well that's right absolutely absolutely um and the other form of subordinated masculinity I write about in that paper is is uh, men with a, a, a diagnosis of mental illness. You know, if we think that part of an important part of hegemonic masculinity is rationality, then uh, men who are are to whom irrationality is ascribed, you know, they're seen they're seen as being irrational, or perhaps they do actually ha have some ways of thinking because of psychosis. Uh, it does put them fairly, you know, obviously into that category of kind of non, not, not, not so rational thinkers. Mm. Then again, um, it's a way in which they, you know, th that form of masculinity is very much subordinated. So I, I, I help out with a, um, a men's group, a weekly men's group in a mental health charity, and certainly those men who regularly come to that don't have, you know, a, a great deal of social power in their lives. Um, you know, quite a lot of isolation um so yeah i, I i'm not saying that the, to, to look at some aspects of social victim who aren't relevant but to see suicide as only about that um as opposed to other masculinized social problems as only about you know men's abuse of power it is mm. is far too crude a dichotomy and in fact in reality we see we we see some of men's abusive power across this range of these issues and we also see some genuine difficulties for men, which are often caused by those those patriarchal structures, uh, again, across a whole range of different social issues. Could I just ask about age as well within that? Because, you know, as I understand it, since about 2010, it's men who are aged between about 45 and 64 who have actually had the highest suicide rate. You know, whereas the sort of pop in popular discourse, we, we tend to talk about suicide as a, uh, um, something that young men are more likely to do. You know, is that, what is going on there? Do you, mm. do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, it, it, you're, you're very right to point that out, Sandy. I think there's two kind of mistakes that are made in popular discourse around men's mental health. One is that it's all about it's all about them not seeking help you know as if that's the only thing to say the other one is that it that it's, it's an issue for young men actually the suicide stats don't show that um it, it is true often um because young men don't tend to die very much of other things you know they don't tend to die of of the physical uh, morbidity that you see in later in life mm. um suicide does loom fairly large as a cause of death for younger men but however, it is. You're absolutely right to say it's those. It's that middle-aged um, or later middle-aged group, which is the, the 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 one at greatest risk. Samaritans uh, did a very, you know, good um, piece of work some years ago. I mean, now back about ten years ago that I was involved with at the time. They published a report, uh, research report, and they did a, a series of kind of 
developing social marketing techniques which are specifically looking at middle-aged and working-class men uh, because they, they were precisely trying to do what, what I've been talking about today, really, which is trying to break down the, 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 the unhelpfully undifferentiated group of all men and say, well, no, actually, there are certain groups of men that are particularly at risk here. So age is an important one, as you say. It is middle-aged men, and, and it is quite class-based as well. Um, so there's there's generally at all ages a higher suicide risk in more deprived communities, uh, much higher. Um, and and we see this particular concentration on this group of middle aged men. So I, I I think there's a lot we still don't know about this group of men. But one thing that has been posited is perhaps a group of men who have. And, and this is really very relevant to us talking about the, the context of feminism that whereas younger men ha who have grown up with the, um, you, you could say grown up with the benefits of feminism, right? So grown up with the kind of positive lessons that have been learned from feminism about a wider range of ways to be a man and that uh, emotionality, for example, being more encouraged, which I think I think it undoubtedly is now. You know, you see, you see um, young men, you even see some, people some scholars of masculinity are talking about inclusive masculinity which is a kind of controversial kind of body of work but nonetheless this isn't this is a discussion to be had there isn't there and that's based on research with younger more middle class men showing you know um very different ways of being a man from what perhaps their fathers would have done uh so young men perhaps haven't grown up with with some of the benefits of feminism for them but this group of men, as you say, the ONS talk about 50, 45 to 64. That group of men is a, a group who have, you know, experienced a number of things at once. They've experienced perhaps the, the chain to move away from manual, the dominance of manual labor. Um, but perhaps haven't because they're that bit older, more of had already lived, had already lived there their youth, their, their 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 childhood and teenage years before encountering feminism, maybe had a less positive engagement with it, uh, yeah. and uh, and and yeah, perhaps are struggling a little bit more in in the kind of current gender role that we have. It's just as an observation. I mean, the 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 point of retirement is quite interesting as well, isn't it? So, you know, I mean, obviously, the labour market is changing in all kinds of ways, but. I think there is the notion that men's friendships, men's support networks are quite often based around work. And so when they leave work, sometimes some of that disappears. And yet, you know, maybe that's too sort of sensitive an issue for the for the stats. But but actually, I think that point of, of yeah. retirement from work is quite important yeah. as well. That's right. And again, it, this, this, this idea of, you know, how the social construction of the stronger sex can be bad for men. Um, there's a, a a nice kind of uh, more general readership book uh, by uh, an American psychologist called Thomas Joyner. He's a very big fish in the world of uh, suicide psychology, and he he writes a, his book is called Lonely at the Top, and it's about suicide in in men. And he writes kind of very touchingly about his own father who took his own life, and starts the book with that. And this idea of lonely at the top is very much about you know, he, he talks about his own father's um, uh, story as, yes, as you say, so so his social life being absolutely wrapped up in work, but also in his in his family relationships. So when he split up with Tom Joyner's mother, um, his social life disappeared, you know, because he and, and he talks about what the lonely at the top bit is about in order to to facilitate getting on in the corporate world I, I can't remember exactly what his father did but he was a it was a kind of a job in business as i as i recall um that actually you know being being a, a bit of a tough loner is kind of approved of you know being able to be a bit of a bit, bit of a tough cookie uh, and and not too dependent on people but you know shooting from the hip metaphorically speaking um you know, it's something that was kind of very much a, approved of as a certain model of corporate masculinity. 
Um, but actually one that doesn't give you social support. So then when some things fall away, perhaps when you're not any longer working and when your relationship when your um, intimate relationship ends, you're in a very different position. Presumably factors like economics, uh, geography, occupation. I mean, you've kind of pointed to that already um, a little bit, but presumably that's playing a role here as well. I mean, like, I think isn't the most, um, isn't the occupation with the highest levels of suicide construction like with um on average two construction workers taking their own lives every working day in in england and wales and also of course particular parts of the country like here in the northeast of england um uh, yorkshire and the humber for example you know having higher suicide rates than places like london um yeah so how would how would you make sense of these kind of figures i mean is are things like deindustrialization, the decline of the kind of traditional heavy industries of the 1980s um you know where men would have had would have predominated in the workplace um and but obviously then experiencing significant unemployment are these you know important factors as well do you think yeah i mean, I mean undoubtedly what we need as with everything is uh, is an intersectional analysis isn't it mm. so you know absolutely we can't just talk about gender undoubtedly for men and women there are greatly elevated suicide rates in more deprived areas you know and I guess we can explain that from some fairly obvious things to do with the strains of living in poverty. You know, the uh, the the direct direct strain on the individual and the and the family of not having enough money, but also the the social problems that cluster in those areas. You know, the the much higher crime rates, much more active drug scenes. Um, and there is just generally worse mental health in the more deprived areas. So it's, it's kind of not surprising then that we see higher suicide rates um, in, in, in both, both men and women in such places. There is a gendered paradox here, because although mm. you said earlier three, three to one ratio of men to women taking their own lives, which is fairly consistent, you know, it doesn't varies a little bit. But if you look across the world, it's fairly consistent in, in most countries. Interestingly, most of the evidence would suggest that women have high levels of suicidal thoughts and high levels of suicide attempts. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's been referred to by people like uh, Sylvia Sara Canetto, who's a, a psychologist who does some good work uh, on this, as, as the gendered paradox of suicidal behaviour. You know, those two things seem to be pointing in opposite directions. And, and again, I think there's probably a lot we, we don't know. But mm. when you start thinking about, so what, what, why is it that, so higher morbidity, I mean, to use the medical terminology, you know, higher morbidity in women, higher mortality in men. Mm. Um, why, why is that? Well, mm. um, a number of possible reasons. But I mean, one of them is is to do with the, especially if you think globally, the cultural associations with the means of death so thankfully not su such an issue for us in the uk but globally firearms are a major cause of suicide mm. um, and of course in in countries which have a lot of guns um, mm. let's say the united states of america just one mm. uh, example then there is a very strong cultural association between masculinity and, and and firearms, yeah. Mm. So um, and of course the it's it's a very lethal um, means um, mm. compared to say taking a drug overdose, which may may not may not actually be fatal, um, may may or may not, you know. So we see cultural associations, gendered cultural associations with those means, which apart partly explain the um, the differences in rate. Mm. Yeah, actually. It makes me think back to our previous episode, actually, with Jackson Katz and uh, looking at the issue of gun violence and actually how in terms of the, the mass shootings, you know, in the US, often there is a kind of murder suicide dynamic and things like domestic abuse are often involved as well. So, yeah, it just makes me think about what you were saying about sometimes these things actually can't always be separated out, I guess, can they? Um, yeah. I was also thinking as well in terms of what you were saying about women's um, suicide, like actually some of the factors which are associated with suicide risk, such as self-harm, depression, suffering domestic abuse, like these are more common among women, aren't they? Um, but vice versa, I suppose, do you think that, um, I suppose, is, is there an issue here to do with like connectedness? And what you mentioned in terms of social networks, I guess, that like, 
Is it those relationships with other people, as a parent, for example, which which can reduce the risk of suicide as well, potentially, or or yeah, prevent that from happening? I mean, is that a factor? And I think this does bring us back to to the help seeking issue because. Mm. Um, yeah, the help-seeking issue isn't only... I, I mentioned, you know, research evidence about men being overall less likely to seek professional help. But, of course, for many people, the most important help is is the informal help. Mm. I mean, actually, mm. most of us would go would not go to a health professional first, would we? We would, mm. with whatever the issue was, especially if it was a, a an emotional or mental health issue, we'd be more likely to go to those people who are closest to us those people in our family friendship group intimate relationships etc mm. and and you know there are undoubtedly gendered patterns here aren't there whereby and again you know i am generalizing and saying this but you kind of have to get into this kind of generalization in general women are quite differently socialized in terms of talking about personal stuff so it's absolutely expected that you will talk about uh, girls will talk about personal stuff with their friends and that will carry on into adulthood not so much for boys and men you know um so n- not not that they don't still have we don't still have social networks important social networks but there there is just a general expectation that they are of a different kind of character you know perhaps more people to have a laugh with as opposed to talk about personal difficult stuff people to, to people to drink with but not so much people to share difficult personal conversations with and so there is a gendered pattern there i mean with all of this we've got to be diff- we've got to be uh, wary of what sociologists would call the ecological fallacy you know something that is a is an observed general trend in society doesn't necessarily apply to the individual who's in front of you in the in the in the gp surgery or whatever um so yeah, always put a caveat around all of it, but there is undoubtedly a, a bit of a trend there of, of of men dealing with personal difficult personal issues in a social sense in a very different way, or or, or not not seeing it as part of the everyday social interaction. Just wanted to come back to something about the the, the gendered culture of suicide, picking up on this. Uh, a researcher called Sylvia Canetto, who I referred to earlier, she's uh, also talked about gendered cultural scripts of suicide more generally. And this will depend on the cultural context, but basically that there are, you know, cultural expectations that are very gendered in any given context. So, for example, she talks about in rural China, Suicide is a kind of culturally expected protest and escape for women against the family that they married marry into. Mm-hmm. She talks about suicide as, as an in 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 our country, suicide in men being a kind of an understandable reaction to having extreme debts. You know, it's something that it's a kind of a common sense explanation that makes that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Mm. That you hear, ah, of course, you know, they had this, these, these extreme debts that nobody knew about. You know, ah, that suddenly it seems to make sense that, yes, maybe that was why they took their lives. Mm. But of course, it's highly gendered, isn't it? Those those associations we make are highly gendered. And of course, to complicate things, these, these feed into coroner's judgments. So then um, mm. these perhaps more culturally predictable suicides are more likely to be become a suicide verdict in a coroner's court because those common sense explanations make sense to to, to coroners. Canetto talks about the, the this as partly explaining the gendered paradox whereby more, higher morbidity in women, higher fatalities in men. Because uh, she says that, you know, suicide attempts are actually feminized in some respects in our culture um, are seen as in in some ways indicating a kind of a weakness um, and and a, a, a death by suicide uh, is almost constructed as a decisive act and unmasculinized uh, is, is something that she's written about as well. One thing you've made me think of, actually, is I mean, I have, well, actually, I've known several people who've killed themselves, to be honest, several men. Um, and uh, one of the things it made me has made me think of is the pressure on 
on families to try and explain you know I mean there are the common sense explanations as you say but there are times when there's no obvious cause at all really you know and it's left as a kind of uh, a, a, a big question you know in people's lives and uh, I, I suppose from personal experience I know how difficult that can be for people as well really yeah. You know, if you if you don't have yeah. explanations, it, it, it's incredibly difficult for, for for those left behind. You know, and there is, unlike with other forms of sudden death, um, there there is a a whole kind of climate of hovering morality and possible blame attached to individuals, isn't there? Which mm. you know you don't get. Um, well, if someone dies in a road traffic accident, you they may be some sense in which the you know one of the drivers is is inverted commas to blame but with with suicide yeah. it's there's absolutely a hovering questions about that which are incredibly difficult for those who are the, the nearest and dearest of, of, of the yeah. deceased very very difficult indeed and and yeah in cases where you where it really is a puzzle then that's probably where these gendered cultural scripts start to feed in that you know we start to we start to think of the kinds of things that make sense to us culturally uh, the kinds of what we think is of kind of familiar explanations for suicide that 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 yeah makes sense to us on on some human level um in, perhaps sometimes in the absence of 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 anything to go on you know no no note no mm. no declared statement of 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 intent from the deceased mm. And also that pressure for families of, you know, what should we have done yeah, to prevent this? Absolutely. You know, yeah. yeah. somehow, I mean, it's part of the sort of self-blaming thing, really, isn't it, as well? But, it's incredibly difficult, um, yeah. And and uh, you said at the beginning of the podcast, the, these topics can be very difficult. I mean, some of this, the, these kind of discussions, even even these kind of researchy, academic-y kind of discussions can be hard to listen to for some people yeah. uh, because it's pretty raw. Mm. And in a sense, some of the sort of coroner's process can can lay to rest or, or um, you know, elucidate certain explanations, but it doesn't do everything. You know, it's a, it's a quasi-legal process, isn't it, that you're dealing with there? It is, and there's been a um, move in, in recent years towards more and more narrative verdicts where, you know, instead of saying suicide, open verdict, natural causes, whatever, coroners are coming up with a, 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 um, a few paragraphs of explanation which perhaps touch on the you know the the possibility uh of suicide but actually slightly hedge their bets about whether mm. whether or not this is and yeah. and and in some ways that that's almost responding to the i think trying to respond to the difficulties that that families experience right right what about more more official responses to suicide i mean you know there are suicide prevention strategies, you know, in place across different devolved administrations at England, Wales level and so on. Um, but do we know how successful, in inverted commas, those strategies are? Um, do they make a difference? And are they taking into account these kind of gendered issues we've been talking about as well? I think I think they're generally, in. if you think of the UK nations, and this is something that it would be devolved fully devolved to the full nations you know i don't believe they are very clearly gendered i, I think I, and it's tricky isn't it because of, of course some things some of the big drivers here actually are probably economic you know and and and, and are absolutely not primarily gendered um as with a lot of big social problems you know reducing poverty, reducing relative inequalities would make probably a very, very big difference. Mm. Suicide prevention strategies don't tend to talk about those kinds of things. Uh, usually, I mean, you can critique that, but usually for the for the reasonably good reason that the in the part of the, the government officials who are drafting them, it's not their job as the person in the health department to be sorting out macroeconomic policy you know and these things tend to be very departmentally demarcated um and also yeah th these are very very big big and difficult questions so in some ways some of it is probably isn't isn't and shouldn't be all about gender um 
But there probably is a place, I would, I think I would argue there is a place for us to be a bit more explicit about gender. You know, if we think about the, the role of schooling in educating uh, boys about how to be men, uh, a bit reluctant, we need to be careful not to put everything, it's, it's kind of tempting to put, mm. see schools as the answer to everything, isn't there? <laughs> and those poor teachers, you know, in the end, they... <laughs> They they kind of they've got to get their kids through the GCSEs. You know they can't they can't solve solve every social problem. It is awfully tempting to see the school as as, as the answer to everything. But you know in, in our latest curriculum, new curriculum in Wales, for example, has health and well-being as one of the six main strands of the curriculum. And I think that's a good message. I think it's going to take a lot of time to to bed in, and um, you know teachers won't be probably won't be geared up for it yet. Uh, but over time, the idea that an important role that schools have is to, in, to to try and enhance children's well-being is an important thing. And part of that could be, let's get a bit explicit about gender here. Let's talk about the fact that um, mm. actually men are, are more at risk of, of, of suicide. You know, let's talk about other, other gendered health issues. Um, and 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 try to, and I'm not saying these things are easy to do, but you know to see what can we do at a at a at a young age mm -hmm. to try and improve the messages. And I think there are some things that are are working well. I mean, for example, there is and has undoubtedly been a gradual destigmatization of mental health problems in recent years. That mm -hmm. you know we only have to 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 glance at. Um, uh, at the mass media to see that there's much more talk about um about uh, about mental health as as an as an acceptable topic of conversation that isn't surrounded by as many taboos as it would have been in the past you know mm. um i was talking to a colleague recently who'd done his um phd research about masculinity in the south wales valleys and and he saw he saw big age effects you know some of the young men in his study were very explicit about mental health challenges that they were experiencing, you know, in a way that he was, he wasn't hearing from the older men, um, and and there is a bit of a, ch a bit of a, uh, a change over time there, and possibly a generational change for the better, I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, and just to just to move topics a little bit, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, another area which you've kind of done research on is that of engaging fathers in uh, child welfare services and and so within that you've argued you know similar to some of the things we've been discussing um already is that you know one of the main obstacles to like father involvement is that men are often labeled as either being a kind of a risk or as a kind of resource for their children um as opposed to actually you know being potentially a complex mixture of of these uh, different elements um so yeah could would you like to explain a little bit about the the different perceptions and constructions that are made about men and fathers within this kind of um practice and, and how they how they play out yeah yeah sure um I mean, I, I have to say, I'm not the not the, the the only or the first person to talk about this kind of dichotomy. <laughs> Others, including people like Bruce Featherstone and and Marion Brandon, in looking at serious case reviews, have, have made some similar points. Really, but yeah, a bit of a tendency to to a dichotomy. So, I guess on the level of casework, individual men becoming categorized as 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 relatively good or relatively bad perhaps mm. relative quite early on and and that th there are risks on all sides of those kinds of crude categorizations i think mm. um so you know on the one hand you need to in those men who can be seen as as, as the good guys you still need to be alert to to to, to risks when you're talking about child protection work um mm. and on the other hand you know, there is a bit of a tendency to, to, for some men in families, you know, not just biological fathers, but men caring fathers in the broader sense, men men caring for children, to be um, to be seen as, as as just essentially a problem and not not to be engaged with because they're a problem. Uh, whereas actually, there could be some benefit in, in engaging them, benefit for the for, for for them for sure, but also for their children. Um, even if that's more 
contact in the paternal wider paternal family you know there's generally a, a lot of concern about the rising numbers of children in the looked after system in in most of the uk mm. and you know there's there's a lot of potential there to explore kinship care placements even where it's not possible for parents to care for their own children kinship care placements on mm. the father's side you know which is ten, mm. tends to not be explored quite as much so yeah, that, lots of positive potential for trying to break down some of those binaries. I think, mm. and I think, I think, mm. kind of more broadly in terms of working with men. I remember so the first piece of research I did um, was back when I was doing my social work masters. Uh, did a, a survey of domestic violence perpetrator programs mm. in, in the you know in the very early days of these. These were very kind of very new in the UK, and I was just interested to see what what, what were people do, what kinds of things were people doing, and trying to map what was going on. I was lucky to be supervised by Russell Dobash, who was kind of a very big cheese oh, wow. in the you know in the uh, violence against women world uh, research world. Um, but what 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 I came across there was you know, kind of big ideological differences between different projects that were quite overt and on the one hand i remember one saying to me that oh we're accused of we're accused of letting men off the hook and mm -hmm. on, on another um, project being told oh we're, we're accused of giving men a hard time now <laughs> what a shame in a way that you know that 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 approaches get so polarized into being mm. seen as either being kind of essentially too soft on men or too hard on men mm. i do think generally when we're talking about working with men in relation to social problems yeah so my, my field i guess is is is, is social work in, in the broader sense not just people who've got their job title as social workers but social work social welfare more broadly um you, you 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 are dealing with social problems that's the bread and butter of your work and there's lots of those which are quite masculinized you know obviously domestic abuse is one but offending more generally is kind of mainly done by men really um a lot of family problems also caused by men's behavior you know in in all of this there are masculinized social problems mm. and i think it's kind of not terribly helpful to have these this kind of dichotomous approach where you know you're either you're either being too soft on them or you being too hard on them i think i think you've got to look at it, it comes back to the conversation about suicide it, it's quite a similar point in essence which is that um you always need to be aware of power dynamics and mm -hmm. the possibility for um in a in, a, in essentially a, you know a, a society which 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 has patriarchal structures for mm -hmm. where for the possibility of men abusing power but equally that doesn't mean that there's nothing uh in this complex mixture which is also very difficult for the men themselves and they're very likely to have come from an incredibly adverse background themselves we we, we know this there's plenty of evidence about this isn't there so you know whilst you may want to focus on on changing abusive behavior quite rightly you know if you go in there with the attempt to give men a hard time and, and i think i think that's kind of where i came in really i think when mm. i very much started being you know being trying to be learn the lessons of feminist scholarship and domestic violence i kind of came in thinking that that's kind of what you should be doing really you should be challenging men you know in, in perpetrator in perpetrator th therapeutic educational work with perpetrators you should be challenging men that's what you should be doing whilst i kind of still i i don't i don't want to get rid of that but i do think that f for one thing generally challenging people confronting people generally doesn't work very well you know <laughs> i mean just a purely instrumental pragmatic level it's probably not going to be very successful mm. um mm. but also you know if 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 you if that's all you think your job is going to it's going to be about you are missing out on a whole lot of other important insights as to what's mm -hmm. going on in these men's lives but equally if you come at that as some of these projects were from a much more from a very kind of therapeutic let's look after this man kind of perspective mm -hmm. and you don't uh, uh, keep the abuse of power in the picture then actually that's not going to be terribly helpful either you know and and, mm. and you have to have essentially a more rounded approach mm. Mm. 
it also raises interesting questions about how women are seen as well. Mm. You know, so, I mean, very often in terms of child welfare, women are seen as particularly responsible, more more responsible than men, you know, mm. and so that, you know, heaps extra pressure on them. Oh, oh fact, hugely. And, and, that, and lets men off the hook. And that's you know, a so very important. It's a really, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a very, very important part, part of the context of why um, work with men in child welfare is actually, you know, um, not great. Uh, and, and the engagement of men is often quite limited. Probably the biggest reason is is what you just said, Sandy. The, mm. the assumption that actually, when it when push comes to shove, it's kind of the mother who's got to step up and, and take take responsibility here, and, and that's even when she's a victim of domestic violence. You know, mm. there, there is this unfortunate common practice of. I mean, you've probably come across the term failure to protect. Is it's a term yeah. you know um, never applied to men. Ever, mm. it's a it's a it's a professional term in the child welfare social work world, which is only ever applied to women, um, mm. and essentially it's applied in situations where a woman is living with an with an abusive man, you know. But but yet the 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 system kind of focuses on her, you know, mm. um, and it, and it's not a there are again some some pragmatic reasons why that happens, and I think it's not an easy thing to shift. But we do need to look at how we're going to shift it. Mm. Absolutely. Well, just the last question I had. Um, I mean, I think everything we've talked about today has just highlighted actually how a kind of feminist gendered analysis has so much relevance to these issues affecting men, such as suicide or fatherhood. Um, yeah, and, and we do like to always ask, you know, a personal question of our of our guests as well. So, like, yeah, pr- could you perhaps just say a little bit about, you know, what what feminism means to you? Like, how did it come into your life, or like, what impact has it had on on you and your work? Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks, Stephen. So, it's a it's a nice question. Nice to be asked something about yourself, uh, yeah. as opposed to you know, <laughs> um, work. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, a very, uh, a very powerful impact in the sense that I think it was part of my part part of the the reason for going into social work. Back back in the day, I trained as a pro- to be a probation officer when you did that through the social work route. That's what mm. you, you know we used to do. And I think part of my interest in probation what was coming from a play was coming from a kind of feminist informed critique uh, uh, you know about about that work and that that work could be could be done in a pro-feminist way. I mean it's you know, it's a hell of a lot harder to do in practice than you, than it is in theory. But I think that was kind of very, yeah, very influential in that and that. And then the reason, you know, from when I first came into academic work, I decided to to follow that through. Um, ended up doing my first piece of research about child protection ra- rather than probation, but gender was the focus of it. And then actually, I got into suicide through through the gender issue. So I, I got into doing research on suicide which I then did some other studies on which were not so gender focused because it was a really interesting issue in terms of working with men so mm-hmm. yeah I mean all, all of that very much influenced by I guess an encounter with feminism as an undergraduate student I mean that's where you know I am um, I, I I properly encountered it I mean I certainly was brought up by by a feminist mother but not one that would have particularly used the word do you know what i mean um yeah. uh but but then more explicitly encountering it yes yeah, as, as a as a student um mm-hmm. and being and student politics which are kind of very very influential on me and um mm-hmm. yeah it's a, it's a, it's a it's a tricky thing that you need to i guess i haven't done very much critical thinking of my of, of on myself for a while about my own relationship to feminism but it's an important thing to do isn't it thanks Donaldson. I, I, I mean i think you know you've mentioned you know feminist analysis quite a lot in in, mm. in all that you've said to us today so uh clearly is of significant relevance to to your approach so uh, i just want to say thanks really for talking mm. to us um it's been really very uh informative and interesting yeah. and uh i've learned quite a lot from talking Absolutely. to you so thank you yeah, thank and you thanks so for much. all the work you've done Totally. Yeah. Thanks to you both for having me. It's been great to be here. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, Stephen, there, there were so many different dimensions to that conversation about suicide, weren't there? Uh, really important stuff. What What did you make of it? 
No, absolutely. I think it shows that all the nuances and complexities of this, doesn't it, really? Um, I mean, one thing which came to my mind was about how, um, as Jonathan said, there has been a real change in recent years, hasn't there, in the UK, and I think in other countries as well, where mental health is starting to be talked about more, and that's seen as being more acceptable to recognise that, you know, all of us have you know, mental health struggles at one point or another, perhaps, and, and how actually that does connect to issues of men and masculinity as well. Although I did also wonder, like, I wonder how, how far that's been able to go in actually addressing the deep-rooted issues which cause, like, so many mental health issues among so many men, for example. You know, like, we don't see huge shifts going on, really, uh, for lots of men in terms of, you know, that it is still very difficult, I think, for lots of men to feel able to express vulnerabilities and difficulties and to to talk to other people about their emotions to talk to to look at their own emotions within themselves and really reflect on those and um and I suppose one thing which which comes to my mind which we did kind of talk briefly about in the episode was was how crucial relationships are right and connections with other people as a kind of protective factor right and in terms of getting that kind of support and helping you to deal with these things and um yeah I mean I think you know that's something I can relate to in my own life that's something which I think is if anything that's potentially getting worse isn't it we live in an increasingly atomized society when you think about like neoliberal capitalism and how we're all often quite isolated and I think that's such a huge issue isn't it among so many men um you know quite isolated and even if they have friendships as Jonathan said they can be quite surface level and don't get into the deeper emotional huge range of emotions we all have so so yeah i think there's real real change needed there really isn't there and reflection about how can we develop more and stronger relationships among men as a way of not least as a way of helping to improve our our mental health really um yeah what did you make of the conversation yourself yeah i agree with what you're saying really and and you know um he mentioned uh, i think it was a, a book called loner at the top you know, and the whole way that sort of corporate culture impinges on on the workforce, and I think yeah. perhaps perhaps men in particular, you know, that that uh, work is is sort of lauded above everything else for for many men for all kinds of different different reasons related to being a, a breadwinner primarily, perhaps. Um, you know, and what that does to uh, men's mental health and sort of mm. view of themselves and as you say that as their their, their relationships and mm. you know um that was very interesting and i think it probably links to um the issue about age too which i found fascinating you know i think most people probably think that it's young men primarily who who kill themselves and actually that isn't the case you know it's the 45 to 64 year old group mm. that that we also uh, particularly have to have to worry about um and that i think that does relate back to the to the work issues really um a couple of other things that occurred to me one was when he was talking about um responses and uh what could be done in education i mean clearly that's right there is a lot that could be done in education you know partly through phse but also beyond you know in other aspects of the curriculum and and beyond that um, without at the same time, as he rightly said, trying to load too much on on teachers who already have too much to do anyway. Um, but I was thinking whilst he was talking about, you know, sports clubs, youth clubs, um, certain industrial sectors like perhaps construction, which you mentioned, what what are they doing? And, you know, it would be interesting at some point to, to talk to people who are working in, in different sectors about, you know, prevention methods really so um he made me think of that and the other thing which we which wasn't even mentioned which i think is relevant is the pandemic actually yeah. you know which obviously had you know very varying impacts so some men mm. were um able to be closer to their children to play a full role in family life in in ways mm. that they hadn't been able to before others um you know were, were very isolated and mm. quite a lot of uh, people, uh, men within that, uh, experience mental health issues which are still still with us, you know. And perhaps if you look at the statistics around suicide, you know, they they will be skewed by uh, the fact that we live through this this really bizarre time. So, yeah. um, and just a final thought, I really liked his sort of se sensitive approach, if you like. Yeah. So if you yeah. compare, say, the more sort of campaign-orientated voice that Jackson Katz had when we talked to him, yeah, you know, this yeah. was actually quite different, you know, and Jonathan was very careful to say, 
you know, men can be risks, they can be resources as well, but these are general ideas and you need to look at, you know, the person in front of you to, to really work out, you know, where they're at. Um, yeah, that seems uh, very important too. So, so I appreciated yeah, that. That's very true. That's very true. Yeah, just on the work point, something I was thinking about there is the issue of workaholism and that how that can be commonplace among lots of men and um, in different ways, right? And and that might manifest in, in differently in different jobs. But I suppose that in itself can cause a lot of stress and anxiety, and it can also sometimes be a kind of a way of trying to avoid some of the issues that might be going on in men's lives, right? By just putting everything into work all the time and not dealing with these other you know aspects of ourselves which we might be struggling with yes. um so you know on that note if you have if you see fewer episodes of the podcast in the future at any point you know i think that might be because sandy and i just feel we need a bit of a break perhaps <laughs> good point Stephen. well made <laughs> uh, but yes i think uh, unless you wanted to say anything else Sandy, we should probably call it quits there really shouldn't we? no i think that's that's fine for now <laughs> so uh, hope to talk to you again soon absolutely yes and uh, yeah thank you everybody for listening as always contact us at nowmen at gmail.com if you have questions or comments uh, do subscribe if you haven't already wherever you get your podcast share it with your friends and yeah speak to you again soon thanks a lot bye for now bye <laughs>